Father, we can sing those words not by the power of our might, but by the power of yours, who though Jesus took on death, Jesus won. And you've taken his great reward and you have superimposed it upon our stories, God, that, that we might be able to sing that though our bodies might be wasting away, we will be living with you forever, that even though we die, we are alive in you, God, and that is our great hope. One day we get to look you in the face and tell you face to face uh, how grateful and thankful we are. Until then, God, we, we pray that you accept our worship. As we just tell you we love you, we are thankful for your kindness and grace and mercy that you have poured out in Jesus, your power, your goodness you have poured out in Jesus. And we drink it deep this morning. God, we pray that as we gather in this room that you do what you do, God. You awaken us to the realities of your truth. That your spirit would stir across this room in power. That for the heart that is here, that is discouraged and, and doubting God, that you open our eyes to the reality of your presence and what that means for us. That we might leave this room encouraged and built up because you are you and you are on your throne and you have called us your child. <laughs> and so, God, we just submit ourselves to you and pray that as we open your word that you have your way amongst us. We pray that and ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. <clears throat> Hope you are well. I am looking forward to this little series as we get into uh, the weeks leading up to Easter. We just got a little three-part series through the story of, of Joseph, and I'm off, awfully excited uh, to walk through his story. It'll lead us up until the Easter holidays. And we, we chose to do this series on, on purpose. As, as I've gotten a chance to, to visit with so many of you and hear your stories, it's one of the joys and, and privileges of being a, a pastor and, and in ministry is, is that so many of you entrust me with your stories, and, and I get to pray with you and walk alongside of you. And, but the reality is that, that, that uh, hardly anybody calls up and says, hey, can I tell you the awesome things that are happening in my life? Uh, most often we get that call, which I understand is part of the ministry, is, hey, can, can, can you pray with me? Can, can I share with you the hard things that are going on in my life? And, and so I get to hear a lot of that. And, and as I've taken that in and listened, the story of Joseph has just been in the back of my mind. If you know the story of Joseph, it is, it is one that uh, that is powerful. It has, um, it has themes that we can all connect to, a theme of an underdog who it seems like life is stacked against him and yet he overcomes. That's something we all like and can relate to. The, the story of what seems like injustices piled upon him, things that he didn't des deserve and yet life has, has taken this drastic turn and he finds himself in, in extremely heart, uh, hurting hard, difficult situations. Uh, and, and that's something that not, not, not a single person in this room can't relate to because the reality is that life on this side of heaven will have its heartaches. It will have its hardships. And yet we find in Joseph a character who despite all of that and despite it being very bad, he holds on to his faith. And as we'll see next week, holds on to his integrity. And, and in so many ways, he is a hero of faith for a lot of people that, that study his story. If you don't know the story of Joseph, <coughs> I 
hang on in this series. We're going to break it apart in three, in three sermons and three sections of his story found in, in Genesis and Pit, Prison, and Prince. And we'll see his story um, um, play each of these weeks before us. It's a powerful one. And we all need heroes of the faith. I, it, it plays out like a, a movie in front of us. My, one of my all-time favorite movies, I think they are my all-time favorite movies, are the Rocky movies. I love the Rocky movies. And it's one of those, Rocky 1 through 4, 5 doesn't count. That's lame. But 1 through 4, and I even like the newer ones. They were really good. Creed was really good. I, but, uh, but, but if they are on TV and I'm flipping through, I will stop, and I can quote most of them by, by every verse, every verse, every, every, every line. <laughs> It's not the gospel, but it's like gospel Rocky. It's right. But particularly Rocky Four. Oh my gosh. That, that, you will never find me training in the snow to fight a gigantic Russian man. However, I can watch that movie and I get pumped up. It could be for yard work. I don't care. I am ready to go. We all need stories of heroes that propel us, that excite us. And you are never, I don't care who you are, you will never have the story of being sold into slavery and becoming the prince of Egypt, all right? That is never going to be your story. However, in reading the story of Joseph, it is a story of a hero that can propel us into our own faith in many ways. And so what we are going to ask Joseph to do for us, and particularly ask God to do for us through the story of Joseph, is to grant us the eyes to see our own situations. Because we will go through heartaches and we will go through hardships. And one of the greatest challenges of life on this side of heaven is, is learning how do, I, how do I process and interpret when hard times come? Because it, it can create a crisis of faith for us that if God loves me, why am I enduring so much? What is going on here? And I think Joseph provides for us the lenses that we need to correctly interpret whatever life might throw our way. So we're going to ask that of Joseph this morning. So to do that, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37, if you'll turn with me there. Genesis chapter 37. This is where Joseph's story begins. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but we'll, we'll summarize a lot of it, read little sections as we go along. And so story of Joseph really begins here as a 17-year-old boy. <clears throat> now Israel, that's Jacob, starting in verse 3, Jacob, God has changed Jacob's name to Israel, which means struggle. And so Israel has 12 sons. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that, for their, saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word of him. And so let's just set the stage. Jacob, who, who is given the name Israel, has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he loves Joseph, his 11th son, the first son to, to Rebecca, loves, her, loves him more than any of his other kids. And so he, he spoils him and, and makes him a coat of many colors, a richly ornamented coat, which uh, might be lost on us. You can just run down to the, the store and buy a coat of many colors if you wanted it. In that day and age, you could not do that. In fact, colors were extremely rare. It would have cost a great amount of money to get, to get uh, various fabrics of different colors. And so to have silks of different colors or wool of different colors, to dye it was a massive process. So the fact that he made Joseph a coat 
of many colors is an extremely expensive gift to give to his son. And he doesn't give that to all 12 of them. He only gives it to Joseph. And now Joseph, being the extremely wise and humble 17-year-old boy that all wise and humble 17-year-olds are, right? Um, (laughs) He decided he's just going to wear this coat all the time. Because why not, right? Daddy gave it to me, and I'm going to show it off. And so he shows it off. And it makes him immensely popular amongst the other 11 boys, right? And then Joseph has a couple of dreams. He dreams that at first they're all out, and they're cutting down wheat, and they're they're, they're pulling it together in big sheaves. and, And his stack of wheat stands up, and the other stacks of wheat all bow down. All 11 of them bow down before his stack of wheat. And so being the brilliant, humble, 17-year-old young man that all 17-year-old men are, he decides to tell his brothers this dream of that God has given me a dream of all of your stacks of wheat bowing down to mine. That made him really popular again amongst his brothers. And they said, what are you trying to say, that we're going to bow down to you one day? Yes, they will. None of them have, know what's, what, that that's a foreshadowing. Then he has another dream, and as if he didn't learn his lesson the first time, he also decides to tell this dream. This time he tells it to the whole family. And in the second dream, it's not wheat. It's just him. He says, I had a dream, and the sun and moon and 11 stars all bow down to me. And he decides to voice that again. And now his mom and dad and 11 brothers are all ticked at him. Go, what do you mean that we're all going to bow down to you? He goes, I don't know. It's just a dream. I'm telling it to you. So he's oblivious, as all 17 wise, prideful young men are. And so the story progresses. Jacob sends out his sons to go be shepherds. And in those days and age, you don't have a, a shepherd field in your pen. They, they grazed the, the countryside, and you went to wherever the green grass was. And, and so the 11 brothers take the sheep far away. Jacob says, hey, Joseph, you're old enough now. I'm going to send you out to go check on your brothers. And he says, okay. And so he goes out. Now, Joseph looked into his closet, and he could have worn anything uh, he chose to wear to go meet his brothers. And in the great wisdom of a 17-year-old man, he decides to wear the robe that they all hate. He puts on his coat of many colors, and he goes out marching to find his brothers. Out in the hillside, they see him coming a long ways away. And this is a highly dysfunctional family there are multiple wives, most of them except for one, or half-brothers of his. There's great competition. Who's going to get the wealth of daddy? It's not a healthy situation. That will become blatantly obvious in the next verse we're about to read. So, helps if I have my Bible the right way. There we go. All right. Look at, look at verse 18. But they saw him, Joseph, the brothers saw him, Joseph, in the distance. And before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, an empty well, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes uh, of his dreams. Yeesh. (laughs) So he comes up. Now Reuben, one of the brothers, is the sensible one amongst them, and said, how about we don't kill him, or we could just throw him into the cistern without killing him, Right? And so he talks them into that. They're like, yeah, that, that's, that seems logical. Maybe gone a little too far with that whole killing thing. And so they throw him into a sister. Now, Reuben has the plan, we're told, to come back and save him later on. Reuben goes away for a little bit. Who knows, maybe he's with the sheep. But before he has the opportunity to come back and save him, Judah, one of the oldest brothers, 
looks up and he sees in the distance a group of Ishmaelites, which is highly ironic if you know your Bible history. Um, Joseph and his crew are the descendants of Isaac. And Isaac had a brother named Ishmael who was cast away. A little Bible history for you. And so those descendants, uh, the Ishmaelites, he looks up. By the way, those of Muslim faith track themselves through Ishmael to Abraham. And so he looks up and he sees the Ishmaelites and he says, Hey, why don't we, instead of just leaving them here, why don't we sell them into slavery? Right? That seems like a logical thing to do for his brother. And his line of thinking is, we're not going to make any money and it doesn't benefit us at all by just throwing him in a, in, a, in a pit. Why don't we sell him? Then we get something for it. So they all thought older brother Judah is brilliant and so they sell him into slavery. Look at verse 28. <coughs> so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. They ripped off his coat of many colors. They killed a goat. They rub his coat of many colors into the blood of that goat. And they go present it to Jacob and say, Jacob, look, your son uh, that you gave this coat to is now dead. Now, raise your hand if you've had a bad day or two in your life. (laughs) Yeah. Raise your hand if you've had a, I've been beaten by my brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt kind of bad day in your life, right? That ranks a little high up there on the list of bad days, right? I mean, think about waking up that morning and you're the spoiled child of Jacob and you're going to bed that night beaten and bruised on a bed of a slave. That's a hard change, right? And if we're reading it, it's got to be jumping out of the page of going, what in the world? What did he do to, un- to warrant that? And yeah, he's, he's prideful and showing off this coat and talking about his dreams, but that certainly doesn't warrant being killed or beaten or thrown into, in, uh, into slavery, uh, sold into slavery by your brothers. I mean, isn't that, isn't that highly unjust? And the answer is yes, it is. And, and it, isn't, that, isn't that highly unfair that that Joseph has to go and endure all of this? Where in the world? Where is a good God in the midst of all of this? And truth be told, God is silent, it seems like, throughout this entire chapter. And it ends, if you read to the very end of chapter 37, with Joseph, the Ishmaelites take him down into Egypt and sell him away to a guy named Potiphar. That'll come out next week. And so we're left with the story. And what, what do we do about this? It's a highly unfair, unjust, terrible situation. Well, on the one hand, it's probably a situation that that we could probably relate to. No, we're not sold into slavery, but we've all had life changed drastically by what's seemingly coming out of nowhere is an unfair situation, right? We've all been there. And if you haven't, hold on, right? And it it can happen like that. Joseph was not lying down in bed as a 17-year-old man going, I'm going to make my 10-year plan of what my life is going to look like, number one. Sold into slavery. Number two, right? That, that was nowhere on his radar. I'm sure he had plans of being a, a, a shepherd and rising up and, and learning lots of skills, and yet here he is finding himself in this situation. How many of you have endured changes in your life that was nowhere on your 10-year plan of what you were picking out for your life? And how many times is it seemingly thrust upon you not by choices you have made, but by choices that others have made and it gets put into your lap. Joseph's life is never going to be the same again. 
It will take a drastic turn. He will experience loneliness. It'll be dark times. I mean, his life is never going to be the same again. And those of us in this room can look back over our life and we could see those turns in our life. If you go back to 17-year-old you in your teenage bed and you say, hey, here's what your life's going to look like, would you have believed yourself? No. 17-year-olds have fun dreaming tonight, right? (laughs) Dream away. So how do we interpret that? What, What do we do about that? Well, I think that's the question that we need to nestled down into this morning with the story of Joseph. Because our lives are filled with these twists and turns, with hardships, with sometimes they're brought on by our own broken decisions. Oftentimes they're brought on by other people's broken decisions. And how do we interpret when life makes one of those crazy turns and we're sitting in the middle of the hardships? How how are we supposed to, to interpret this? Our brains have this process that they do that is fascinating, whereby we we it's called, I'm going to mess this up, stereopsis. And stereopsis is the process of taking two images that your brain sees and knitting them together to see one 3D image. Because your, your eyes see from two total different angles and they're looking at one, situ- one thing. And our brain does this often thing, awesome thing that instead of us seeing two things at one time, it knits it together into one picture that we see. It's binocular vision, right? But if you ever have something happen to one of your eyes, it will change that to monocular vision and you lose that process and your field of depth goes far away. You stop seeing clearly in that way. And that's a process I've become very familiar with. And when I was in seventh grade, I was on a youth group trip with my church and I had a massive injury to my left eye. And it has caused all, wrecked all sorts of havoc in my life ever since then. It, it caused damage to muscles in my eye. It, it cut open the eye. It was bad. It was a bad deal. And I already had bad eyesight, but this took it to a, to a whole, new, whole new level. Uh, to the point that last year at 34 years old, I developed a cataract in just that eye. I had to have cataract surgery at 34 years old. That was on my to-do list. Um, and, and what happens now is that I have to have special glasses, particularly for my left eye. If I take off my glasses because of the muscle damage to my eye, that that eye will begin to slip, and I will start to see two of everything, which is kind of freaky, right? And so by putting on my glasses, when I wake up in the morning, I look in my room, and I see two of everything, two of Amy lying right there. And I put on my glasses, and I actually see, it's crazy, I see my eyes coming into into alignment. And so two becomes one as I begin to see more clearly in the field of depth. It's crazy. It's kind of cool. You can try them on if you want. But when I go get my glasses made, they're stupid expensive because of that. And, and there's two total different prescriptions f- for the two lenses, right? Because my right eye needs something totally different than my left eye does not And I see two of all of you, by the way. Um, and so I so do that. I, I bring that up to say this, that, that I think what we need to do this morning is to allow Christ-centered theology to begin to reshape how we see and interpret life. And I think in particular, there are two lenses that we need to begin to see life through. Sovereignty and seasons. Sovereignty and seasons. And all that will be framed with the, with the cross and our understanding of that. But, so let's walk through this and what I mean by sovereignty and seasons. Let's start with sovereignty. Sovereignty is defined, don't pay attention to my 18,000 tabs I have open at the top there. Um, I don't know how you internet surf, that's how I do it. Um, sovereignty is defined as supreme excellence of an exa- or an example of it. Supreme power, especially over a body. 
um, uh, freedom from external control or a controlling influence. And so we say a country is sovereign when no other countries control it. It has the ability to make its own decisions. And so sovereignty is a theology word that we use to say that God has nobody controlling him. He sits on the throne. He is sovereign over all. He makes his own decisions. He does what he wills. He, there's no, no powerful thing dictating to him what he's supposed to do. He's sovereign. And we get that when we endure bad things. In fact, it's the principle of sovereignty that ticks us off at God when we go through bad things. Because our logic goes this way. If God is completely in control and I am going through something that is heart, heart aching and hurtful, then either he has caused it or he has allowed it. Either way, I don't like him because of it. Right? Have you been there? Yeah. And that's logical. Except that. Christ-centered theology changes our understanding of sovereignty. So let's allow the, the corrective lens of Jesus to change this. Because yes, Jesus is sovereign. Yes, God is sovereign. But he is sovereign over all of humanity. From beginning to end, every single person, he's sovereign over all of history, from the beginning of time to the end of time, he sits on his throne over all of that. And here's the kicker. Over all of that story... We are not the main characters of that story. We're important characters. We're valued characters. We're unique characters. We're loved characters. We're special characters. But we are not main characters. And that changes everything. The story we just read, Genesis 37. Who's, who's the main character of this story? It's not Joseph. It's not Joseph. See, this is one chapter in a book with 1,189 chapters in it, spanning thousands upon thousands of years. And this isn't the story of Joseph. This is the story of God redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the main character of every story we read in all of Scripture. It all points to him. And so Joseph is a side character. He's an important character. He's a valued character. There's much we can learn, but Joseph is not the main character. And our problem is we can forget all the rest of Scripture, zoom into this tiny little part, this tiny little chapter, and then it seems like a tragedy. But when we zoom out and say, wait a second, this is a part of a much larger story that God is at work redeeming his people through what his son will do on the cross. And wait a second, his son will come through the line of Jacob himself, through the brother Judah, by the way, through his line who sold Joseph into slavery, who made that decision. And God knows that, hey, a famine is coming and it's going to wipe out much of that world, that Jacob and his children will not have the ability to afford any food. I need to take care of them. So Joseph has no clue of any of this, but he gets sold into slavery into Egypt through a miraculous turn of events we'll study next week. He eventually becomes second in command over all of Egypt so that when the famine hits, God has positioned him such that he can save his own family. And it's through that family that Jesus is born and you and I are saved. Amen. Joseph has no clue of any of that. He just knows he got sold into slavery. But a perspective that zooms out and says, it's not about me, changes everything. It changes how you see whatever tragedy you endure. That this is not a tragedy. It's an opportunity to point to Jesus Christ, who is the main character of my story. And I'm just a See, what happens when we don't take that perspective is we try to reduce God into a character of our story. 
right? Hey, big guy, you're supposed to be taking care of me. Where are you right now? I don't like this story because my story is going through hard times. You're supposed to only give me good times. And God is saying, wait a second, it's not about you. It's about me. And I've got good times for eternity saved out for you. It's coming. Trust me. However, right now, we need to point people to my son, who's the main character of all of this. And so our heartaches are opportunities because it's in the darkness where the light needs to shine the most, right? And everybody will go through darkness. Not everybody will have light as they do it. Christians do. This is why in 1 Peter, Peter, who knows something about that darkness, says this. He says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, meaning in all your hardships, though you now for a little while, you you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hear that. That in the middle of your hardships, your faith might result in the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say this, that though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Do you hear it? He's saying there is a way to endure hardship. Every person you will ever meet will endure hardship. That's life on this side of heaven, right? But there is a way to endure hardship where you are filled with an inexpressible joy that causes people to glorify in the goodness of Jesus Christ. What is that way? The extreme shifting of going, it's not about me right now. It's about Jesus. It's it's all about Jesus. And so I would not have picked this. I would not have chosen this, and yet I'm going through this. And so God has chosen to use this so that others may get to see Jesus. And if I have that focus, it says that we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. It makes sense that we have joy in good times, right? It makes no sense that we would have joy in the middle of hardships. And what happens when that is seen by others around us? Why in the world are you so happy? You're going through blank. Yes, because I have the Son of Jesus of God living inside of me. And it's all about Him. It's why James, I know many of you ladies are studying the book of James. It's James 1 starts out, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you suffer trials of many kinds. Who considers it joy to suffer? Christians who know that their suffering is used for a cause right? Which is a total shifting of perspective. And I get that's hard. I get that none of us would choose to suffer, which points us to the second lens, the lens of seasons. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality that life is filled with ups and downs. That even Jesus, when he stepped out of heaven and he came to earth, even Jesus suffered on earth. Because this is a broken place. This this isn't heaven. We've talked about this before, that if you think this world is inherently good, you'll be frustrated by every bad season you endure. But through the gospel, we see it clearly that we know that this world is an inherently broken place. We instead are incredibly surprised by every good season we endure, right? That's the outlier. 
pain is the normal. Heartache is the normal. The fact that I get to have joy in the middle of that, the fact that there's any good season at all. That's why James says, says uh, do not be deceived. All good and perfect gifts come from above, from the Father of lights. That's why he says that, right? Don't be deceived. Good is not the norm. Bad is. So if you have a bad day, welcome to earth, right? If you have a good day, welcome to heaven. And what, <coughs> <coughs> who was it that sang the, the, the birds, sang the song for everything there is a season, turn, 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 right? Young folks in the room, look it up on Spotify. <laughs> the birds were just quoting Ecclesiastes 3. And Ecclesiastes 3 starts with Solomon saying, hey, for everything there is a season, for every activity there is a time under the sun, which means there are going to be seasons that come and seasons that go, seasons that are good, seasons that are bad, and you don't have the control to change the seasons, right? Look at, look at Joseph's story. He woke up that day, the spoiled kid of a rich man, Right? He didn't do anything to deserve any of that. He didn't create that season for himself. That is the season that God put him in. Awesome. Which, by the way, if you're looking at a good season and think you've had anything to do with creating that good season, right? Think how many things could just change like that. Why do you have the health right now that you have? Why do you have the opportunity, the job, the provision, the friends, the, the place? Right? We can point to good people all over the world that right now are not, don't have that, right? They're crying out. So even the good seasons, he didn't create. And then that night, he goes to bed a slave. Also, he didn't create that. And yet God deemed it as such that the season would change. And we need to hear it in our soul, that seasons change. That's what they do. Unless you're in San Diego, and it's like summer most of the year. (laughs) But this year, you guys were reminded there is a winter every now and then. This sermon lands a lot better where there's four seasons, right? And you go, no, seasons change. This is why in what Maya read earlier to us in this famous passage in Philippians 4, which, by the way, most people take Philippians 4.13 way out of context and use it as horrible theology that says, hey, I'm going to be good in every situation. I'm always, no, look at what he says. He says, "I, I, I know what it's like to be in need. Paul, a missionary. Wrote half the the New Testament, and yet he knows what it's like to be in need. He says, and I know what it's like to have plenty. I've gone through both seasons. He says, and I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. You can easily change that Greek word into any and every season. I've learned learned the secret of contentment. That whether well-fed or starving, whether living in plenty or in want. Do you hear what he says? No matter what the season, I have learned to be content. And what is his contentment? That I can do all things. I can go through all things. I can endure all things through him who gives me strength. And here what he says. The secret is by basing my contentment on what is constant in my life. What is constant in my life is not the seasons. Here's what I mean by that. That if you're going through a good season right now and you are telling yourself, I'll be joyful as long as this season stays the way it is. Good luck. You're going to be setting yourself up for some frustration because seasons change. That's what seasons do. Seasons are not the constant in our life. Jesus is. And he says, I can can endure whatever because no matter what season it is, whether it's a good season, I'll point people to the good giver. 
And if it's a hard season, I'll point people to the good sustainer who's with me. And no matter what season I am in, Jesus is with me and he's got a purpose. Now, (coughs) having said all of that, dear Christian, let's talk about what is the joy that is ours as Christians. Because what is the ultimate ending season promise to us? Yes, seasons come and seasons go, but on the horizon for every Christian is a season that will never change. And it is always the season of joy. It says, I, darkness may last through the night, but joy comes in the morning, and I know there will be a morning always. We are people of the empty tomb. It says that for three days, God left his son down in the grave, and you might be in a hard season, right? And it may be terrible. It's only day two. Day three's coming, right? It says God might, and, and, and why did God choose to do it three days? I don't know. He could have done it the next day. He could have done it the next hour. In his sovereignty, he decided to do it as such. For three days, they had to sit in the gloom. But oh, on the third day, everything changed. And so it is with us that God may decide his timing may drive you nuts. Say, God, would you just change the season already? And if his answer is no, then there's something beautiful in that season he has you in. There's some way that you can be pointing to Jesus in the middle of it. And it may take you to the very end of your life itself. But here is the audacious hope of Christianity. That though my body dies, I live. Amen? Amen. That we are people of the empty tomb. That says that I can endure whatever season And I can endure it with joy in my heart because I know it's only a season. And joy will come in the morning. And that's a faith stance that those that have not been awakened by Jesus cannot understand. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you in. I want to invite you in to allow God to roll away the stone of your heart that you might feel the living God inside of you, stirring with hope. Hey, I don't, I don't know what season of life you're in right now. If you're in a good one, praise be to God. Give him glory for that. If you're in a hard one, praise be to God. He's with you. You're not alone. The church would love to rally around you in this season and be, be there with you. That's why, why we're called to be the church. But here's what I know. These two lenses of sovereignty and seasons, they're all framed in the cross, not in circumstances. Our faith is not framed in circumstances. Circumstantial faith fades away as soon as the circumstances go bad, right? A faith that is framed by the cross and the empty tomb says, it doesn't matter how bad the circumstances are. Jesus loves me. This I know. He is good. I don't base his goodness off of my circumstances. I base it off the empty tomb. I know it to be true. So this morning, if you're here and that's hard to hold on to, confess that confess that, right? Confess that, Jesus, I need that faith. I need that perspective. Ask him to produce that inside of you. That is, that is not natural. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Natural is that when it goes to pot, we go to pot with it, right? That's natural. Supernatural is I am filled with an inexpressible joy. And that's what God wants to do in you this morning. So I don't know how you are seeing life, but may Jesus reshape it. That through sovereignty and seasons, we might endure much like Joseph. Because when you retell Joseph's story through those lenses, oh, things change. It's the story now of a God 
who looking down at his creation knew that he needed to bring a Messiah. And he had promised to do it through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he orchestrated as such that a little boy who, though he had no clue, would one day rise to be the prince of Egypt so that he might save all of his family, so that through that family we might know salvation. It's a different story when you read it through sovereignty and when you read it through seasons. And I don't know what chapter your story is right now, but there's more to the story. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you that we know the final chapter. (laughs) We are living out our chapter right now, but we know the final chapter. We may not know what happens between now and then, but we know where it ends. It ends with you on your throne. It ends with us around you as your children living in your goodness, God. And sometimes that's easy to believe and sometimes that's incredibly hard to believe. So right now across this room with your spirit supernaturally, God, I pray that you stir in us and you grant your children with faith. That we would have the eyes to see our situation. That we'd have the trust to believe in you that you would give us clarity of how do we operate and move within this and within the season that we're in. Father, I, I, I pray that, that for the heart that is here this morning and it's filled with heartache and hurt, that you just pour into it your goodness, that their eyes would be open, that like a whisper in the back of their mind, that still small voice would, would convince them of your love and that you are with them. You are the constant that will never change. Father, we we come to you as the giver of life, the sustainer of goodness, the one who is with us always. And we just ask, God, have your way amongst us. Do what you do, God, and we will be your children. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.